So, some of you have been to Europe, uh, and you've been to some of the great cathedrals of uh, European history, like the one in Cologne, Cologne, Cologne Cathedral, world famous, towering spires. How old are the oldest of those cathedrals? What would you say? 1400s, a little earlier, a little later than 800s, but probably the earliest of those in the Gothic period that we would talk about would be somewhere maybe about the 11th, 12th century. There's some that are older than that, but the 12th century, so how many years ago was that? Yeah, well, the 11th century would be how many centuries? It's 21st, so it'd be a millennium ago. They're really impressive, and you know they were built in order to glorify God. That's why the Gothic cathedrals are so perpendicular, and they let in a lot of light. You go in them, and they've got the, what they call the clear story. I used to think it was cholesterol. <laughs> the clear story lets in a lot of light, designed to magnify the glory of, of God for worship. Do we have anything like that in America that's that old? Yeah, sure. Redwood trees, they're, they're older than that. <laughs> but we don't have anything like that in America. Uh, that's that old, and frankly, very few churches that are that magnificent, built for the glory of God. You know, those things took generations to build. They weren't built in just one generation. Uh, a master builder that would maybe be responsible for the beginning would have a son and then a grandson who would become the master builder before they finished. Some of them took 100 years. Well, what does that have to do with things? We'll see. How many houses of worship would you think that there are in America? By houses of worship, I mean uh, Christian churches of all kinds, varieties. Heinz 57, all kinds. Uh, and that includes storefronts, which are not towering spires. Okay, uh, That includes also Jewish synagogues and Muslim what? Mosques and Hindu. What do the Hindus worship in? Temples? And Buddhist centers, you might call them temples, but they call them centers. They're about 400,000, just short of that, the last survey that I saw. And 95% of them, 380,000 of them are Christian. Only less than 1% are synagogues. And a few less than that, mosques, number about 2,800. Buddhist centers are just under 1,000. And behind that are the Hindu temples, about, about 900. How often do they pray in those places? <clears throat> or how often do they pray? You know, we live in a society today where we think, and it is, it's becoming increasingly pagan. And we would think that maybe prayer is not all that commonplace in America today. But it is, far more than it is in Central Europe, Western Europe. The last report that I read on it says that uh, about 55% of Americans pray daily. That's encouraging. What that means to me, though, is probably a lot of those folks may say grace once a day or something like that. But still, but still, they're, they're praying. That's encouraging. Uh, which group do you think has the highest percentage of prayer? I, I would think Muslim. Nope. Wrong. Not Christians, not Jewish. Jehovah Witnesses. 
90% say that they pray at least daily. And who's right after that? Mormons. Mormons, 85%. After that, African American or, or black Protestants, about 80%. And then we come next after that. I would categorize us in the next category, evangelical Protestant, 79%. It surprised me because Muslims come in under evangelical Protestants by about 10%, 69%. That's very interesting because they are required not just to pray daily, but how many times a day? Five times a day, yeah. Um, Roman Catholics come in about 2% under that. And then the Orthodox, Orthodox Catholics. Mainstream Protestants then come in right about the average, 54%, followed by Hindus, Buddhists, and then Jewish people about 29%. And then we have the nuns. I'm not talking about uh, the ladies with the habits. Let that sink in. Who are the nuns? People of no religious preference. Now, a lot of them are not irreligious. They just don't have an alignment with Christians or uh, Protestants, Catholics, or whatever. But they make no religious preference. About 20% of them. So tonight we're talking about those two things. We're talking about house, cathedral, Structure, building. We don't believe that that's what the church is, a building. Okay, but we are talking about the house of what? Prayer. Uh, so when does this begin? If we're really going to look at the redemptive thread, we need to go back to the beginning. When do you find prayer beginning? Well, actually, it goes back to the first uh, couple of chapters. Adam and Eve, did they pray to God? They walked with God, and they talked with God. I, the implication is it's face-to-face. -face. So you might call that prayer, but they had fellowship with God until when? Well, we say until the fall, but actually they had an encounter with God after the fall, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, and he talked to them face-to-face. -face. Uh, prayer began, as most of you know, because we covered this near the beginning of the redemptive thread in Genesis 4, the, the first biblical account of what we would call prayer in that way. For in the days of Enosh, it says that people began to do what? Call upon the name of the Lord. So in the New Testament, when we talk about prashukamai, when we talk about general prayer, that is falling on our face before God, that's what we mean. Calling upon, coming before Him, bowing down, calling upon the name of the Lord. Early accounts of communing and walking with God, we know that, uh, first of all, Enoch. Who was Enoch anyway? Where does he come in the kind of chain of genealogies? He's the next to the last generation before the flood. So whose father was he? Not Noah's, but Methuselah's. Because when Methuselah dies, that's when the flood comes. He did what? He walked with God and then what? I like the way the scripture put it. And then he was not. God, God took him. Who else walked with God after that? That was righteous and blameless before God and all men. Noah, Noah, and he walked with God. And, I, that, and to me, the implication is that he had communion with God, praying and talking with God. And then the next one that I find after that, who called upon the name of the Lord was none other than Father Abraham. Abram at that time at Bethel in Genesis 12. What about places of worship? So that has to do with the beginnings of prayer. And we're not, this isn't a study on prayer, so we're not going to go into depth in looking at that any further. But what about places of prayer? Adam and Eve, of course, walked in the garden. Uh, where do we find the first sacrifices? In Genesis, which chapter? Not quite three. Four. 
and who offered the first sacrifices? I'm going to say Abel and Cain. I like to put Abel first. We always say Cain and Abel, okay? Uh, so that is a form of worship, and I don't know whether they prayed with that or not, but certainly they offered sacrifices to God at some place of worship. It probably wasn't a building. And then Noah, after the flood, in Genesis 8, chapter, after the flood, the first thing that he does is he builds an altar, and he then does what? He sacrifices to God. What about the patriarchs? gets a little confusing. There were a lot of places where they worshiped. Abram, after he comes into the land that God tells him to go and doesn't name it, but he shows him and then he goes there and then he gets to Canaan. He first built his altar at Shechem, that is in the 12th chapter of Genesis, after he has been called and he gets there then to Canaan. And then afterward, the next one is in the, at the house of God. That's what it means. What, what is the word for the house of Bethel? At Bethel. That's where we first have him then calling upon the name of the Lord. And then he builds another altar at Hebron, or Hebron, however you want to say it, a little bit later in Genesis 13. And then he takes Isaac, and he goes to a land where God has called him to go and directs him. And he sees a mountain there, and this is the land of, can you fill in the blank? Okay. Moriah, exactly, the land of Moriah. And we don't know exactly where that is, but it's a mountain in the land of Moriah and the mountains of Moriah. And tradition holds that the place where he was going to sacrifice, not just Christian tradition, but also Muslim tradition. And that's why there is such a conflict between the Jews and the Muslims in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount, which they call Mount Moriah then, is where supposedly, according to tradition, he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And then Isaac... He then sacrifices at Beersheba. He built an altar and he called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 26. And then Jacob bounces back and forth. Three places, three accounts of where he, where he offered sacrifice. He encounters God in his dream and his vision in the ladder, Jacob's ladder. He sees the angels ascending and descending on it. And Jesus later uh, relates that story in John, the first chapter, about the Son of Man being on, on that ladder. That's at Bethel, or Bethel. And then... After he has this tra almost traumatic experience with Jacob, he really fears meeting Jacob again. And he meets Jacob, and I think that's a wonderful picture of reconciliation. Jacob embraces him, and they're reconciled. And after that, in thanksgiving, he offers his uh, sacrifice. He builds an altar at Shechem again, as Abram had done. And then the last is when God names him Israel. You're the one that has striven with God. And he returns to Bethel to do it there. So there, there are specific places with the patriarchs where they finally built altars. But as far as we know, there's no building. What is the first structure that we have of a place to worship then in Jewish tradition? The tabernacle. Tabernacle. Uh, chapters 25 through 31, the instructions are given. And then chapters 35 through 38, the construction is done according to God's instructions. And it was first located... When they go across the Jordan River, just to the east of Jericho, they located the tabernacle at Gilgal in Joshua, the fourth and fifth chapters. We don't know much more about where it's located until we come to the time of the judges. And for about 300 years, it was not at Gilgal. It was at Shiloh. And then Saul moved it. I love the name of this place. Sounds so sophisticated. He moved it to Nob. <laughs> Nob. Uh, he did that, 
after the Philistines had stolen the Ark of the Covenant, and he moved the tabernacle to Nob. And the Ark of the Covenant, you know, is eventually not, it didn't take long for them to restore it back to, the, to Israel. But he did not then bring the Ark back to the tent yet. And then he killed the priests at Nob because he had a conflict with them, and he moved the tabernacle to Gibeon. And Gibeon is then where it stays until the time of David. And you think about that. That tabernacle was pretty threadbare by that time. So what did David do? David built another tabernacle. He built another tent to be in Jerusalem. The original tabernacle stayed at Gibeon, and that's where they offered sacrificial worship. But there is another tent in Jerusalem. Why did David build that tent? Because he's determined to bring the Ark of the Covenant then, which has been at Beth Shemesh until the Israelites decided to look into it and they were struck down by God. <laughs> and it had been moved to Kiriath-Jeraim. And they move it, David moves it then to that tent. So this sets the stage then for David wanting to build this house for the Lord. And God said, you're a man of blood, you can't build the temple for me. I'm not housed in a temple, but if you're going to build a place for me to worship... You cannot do it. It will be your son who does it. Of course, that is Solomon. And he built it on what we call Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. It was begun 480 years after the Exodus. In the fourth year, they began of the reign of Solomon. Exactly when that is, a lot of scholars debate. But they're pretty certain about the finish date, which was seven years later, somewhere around 959. It took seven years. It was in the 11th reign of Solomon. And so I want to do, at the beginning, I want to read a little bit about what um, we looked at last week. Chris talked about the triumphal entry, and that sets the stage for tonight. Imagine this crowd is marching behind and around Jesus, and they're coming from the east. They're coming up from Jericho, the Jericho Road, and they come up to Jerusalem, and then they see the temple. And you have to imagine this, folks. The temple's been there for almost a thousand years. My math says it's been there 988 years. If this is about the 29th year of Jesus, not of his life, but of what we would call 29 AD, which may have been when he was about 32 or 33, a lot of the folks that are traveling with him may have never seen the temple. And all of a sudden they catch a glimpse of this gold-inspired, huge building towering into the sky. When they brought the coat to Jesus and placed their cloaks on the colt, he sat on it, and many people spread their cloaks on the, on the road, while others spread branches that they had cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, what? Hosanna. What does that mean? Save us. Save us. God, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father Abraham. No, our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. And I love the way that this passage ends, this part. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into Jerusalem. He went to the temple. And he looked around. And he looked around at everything. And then it was already late. So he went to Bethany with the twelve. There's kind of a denouement there. There's kind of a, a drop off. You know, you have this climactic triumphal entry. He goes to the temple. He looks around says, okay, let's go home. <laughs> and he goes to Bethany with the twelve. Imagine the picture as they have come in, into the, uh, the city of Jerusalem. Many haven't seen it before. This is their first glimpse. Most buildings in that day, apart from the Tower of Babel, which is not there anymore, 
or maybe, maybe two stories, maybe three stories. The temple was 15 stories tall. Imagine that. Large grounds, about 25 football fields, a lot, lot larger than Jerry's world, okay? 33 acres with golden spikes to keep the birds off the spires that glittered in the sun with eight gates that were covered with gold and silver. Can you imagine the spectacle? Massive stones. We're not going to look at it tonight when we come to Mark, the 13th chapter. The beginning of that passage where Jesus talks about the end times, one of his disciples comes up to him and says, Master, look at this temple. Isn't it magnificent? Look at the massive stones. What's he talking about? They're in the middle of reconstructing and renovating the temple. It's been going on for several years. And some of the stones are lying around there, and the building stones for the wall are five tons. They're huge. The stones, the cornerstones, weigh ten tons, and the foundation stones weigh somewhere around 70 stones. This was a huge, massive building. It awed the disciples. The Golden Gate on the east, not the bridge, okay, was in line with all of the courtyards, and there was a double colonnade around the temple. The colonnade was marble floor with cedar roof, 40 feet high. Folks, that's four stories high. Can you imagine? I mean, that, that's pretty impressive today. Can you imagine in that day? Solomon's porch, which overlooked the Kidron Valley, was where Jesus had taught on the feast day in the previous winter. And it was there in John, the 10th chapter, where he had said, I and the Father are one. It is where he had first publicly declared his deity. And now this is the next spring. The courtyards. You know about the outer court, the court for the Gentiles. It was surrounded by those 40-foot colonnades. It's where the Sanhedrin met, and he's going to meet them there. It's where the vendors sold their animals, and money changers worked. It's where Jesus would teach over the next few days. And of course, you know, there was a five-foot wall, about that tall, somewhere in there. I used to be a little taller than that, but I've shrunk. And that five-foot wall around the temple was to do what? It wasn't going to really keep anybody out. Somebody could jump over it. But it was a barrier that every Gentile knew because there was a warning on the wall that you were not to trespass that barrier upon the penalty of what? Death. Death. The court of the women, then, when you go into the temple itself past that wall, it was also where the, you went, they went through the gate, beautiful, from the east. It was one of the three east entrances. And then you came into the treasury. There were 13 horn-shaped receptacles. Why 13? Well, I haven't read much about this research, but I think it's pretty obvious. How many tribes were there? Twelve. Wait a minute. That doesn't add up. Yeah, Joseph's tribe was divided into what? Manasseh and Ephraim. So that's twelve. And then you also have the what? The Levites. So there were, there were 13 receptacles. And that is, of course, where Jesus sees the widow then put in her two mites a little bit later. There were four chambers in the women's court. One of those was the woodshed. <laughs> and one of the priests was sent to the woodshed. He was a defective priest. He was a priest that had some deformity or whatever and was not allowed then to minister in the, the court where the priest ministered in the holy place. So he was given the job to do what? To go into the woodshed and go through the wood and pick out the wood that had the wormwood in it. There was a leper's chamber. And that was for 
not people who still had leprosy. It was for those who had been cured, who had come then to the temple to offer sacrifice. Remember, Jesus tells the leper, so don't go tell anybody. You just go to the priest and you do what the commandment tells you to do because you've been cured. Well, that's where he would have gone, to the leper's chamber. There was a Nazarite chamber, and this rings a bell for Paul. Paul took the Nazarite vow. It's where those that had taken the Nazarite vow would go in to prepare to offer their sacrifice. And then there was a storage chamber, a fourth chamber in the fourth corner. And that's where they kept oil and wine for the drink offerings in the temple. And then you went to the inner court, the court of, the, of Israel. And the court of Israel was only for whom? For Jewish, what? Adult, what? Males. And it surrounded the court of the priest. And the court of the priest, could the layman ever go into the court of the priests? Oh, be careful here. They could. They could. One time a year, male Jews were allowed to go into the court of the priest at the Feast of Tabernacles, but only during that time. And there was a labor there for cleansing, for purifying between the altar and the temple. And then there was a porch. You begin to you enter the main part of the temple. It was 150 feet wide, 30 feet deep. And the outer doorway into the porch was four stories tall and 30 feet wide. 30 feet wide, folks. That's about from the, that post there to about where Joe's sitting. Four stories tall. And then as you went through that door, there was another door that was 20 feet tall and 15 feet wide. And then you entered the holy place, which was about the size of maybe of an average sort of middle income starter home, about 1,800 square feet. And in that was the altar of incense, the seven-branch candelabra lampstand, and then the showbread. And the showbread represented whom? Represented Israel before the Lord. And then there was the double veil. The double veil was, was embroidered in blue and gold and white and scarlet. And only one person went beyond that double veil. And who was that? was a high priest, and when did he do it? On Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. Going in there, it was empty. There was no furniture in it. What had been in there before, the Ark of the Covenant, with the tablets of stone and Aaron's rod that had bloomed and the pot of manna, but the Ark of the Covenant is not there. Hmm. The Urim and the Thummim, they are no longer there. And the holy oil and the sacred fire are no longer there. So what's the significance of the temple and the story behind the story tonight? Moriah, of course, supposedly where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. The temple had stood now for almost a thousand years. There had been actually three phases of the temple. There was a first temple, of course, according to Solomon. We talked about that. It was begun in the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And it was finished in about 959. Well, Hezekiah had renovated it several hundred years later in 686. And there was another renovation during the revival under Josiah, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians in which year? 586 to 7. Remember the destruction of the northern kingdom was 722. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple about 586, 587. And then the second temple was built when Cyrus then allowed them to return and it was done under the governor Zerubbabel, and it was finished then in about 515 under the next king, not Cyrus, but Darius I. Now, that's not the Darius that we had down here in, uh, in Maston Hall the other day. 
People think, well, that, that's Darius the king. No, that story in Daniel is Darius the what? The Mede, and he's different. This is Darius the king of, of Persia. Ezra was the scribe, and Joshua was the high priest. And now what we come to is Herod's renovation of that second temple. It, begun, it had begun about 19 B.C. It, it had taken about 10 years to refurbish the sanctuary. So that brings us down to about 10 B.C., and since then, a thousand priests have been working on renovating and reconstructing the temple because laymen could not go in there. So artisans that were priests. And 10,000 skilled workers worked outside the temple. The final project was not finished until long after the crucifixion and resurrection. It wasn't finished until 64 AD. So you had 64 and 19. What's that? 83 years to renovate the temple. The work was continuing under Herod Agrippa II, Herod's great-grandson. So what was the significance of this temple? Well, it was a political site. You see, Herod's motive to renovate the temple was he was a non-Jew and he was trying to please the Jews. Also, too, it was a place where the temple tax was brought, the half-shekel tax by all the Jewish males. And it was a symbol of diaspora unity. Wherever you were in the world... Hopefully you would come back to Jerusalem someday to the temple to offer sacrifice. And remember what the high priest said in John 11. After Jesus had resurrected Lazarus, what did the high priest say? He said, you know, I know y'all are worried about this guy, Jesus, but you know, this may turn out for good. Because there needs to be one that will be what? Sacrifice for the sake of the nation. Where would that sacrifice occur? In Jerusalem. Where? And the implication is at the temple. What was he saying? He was hoping that there would, be a sacri- there would be a sacrificial lamb that was a Jew that would be put to death. And then what would happen? All the people would rally then after that and overthrow the Roman yoke. So you see there were some political overtones to this. It was a religious site because it was devoted, of course, to worship of Jehovah, the monotheistic God, supreme creator of all the universe. It was a place of sacrifice. Synagogues... In Jerusalem and, and in the countryside, synagogues were places of study and, and houses of prayer. They were the central power place of which group? The Pharisees. But the temple was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of cleansing and atonement. And who managed that? The chief priest and the Sadducees. And there were sacrifices morning and evening constantly every day of the week. And the courts of the temple were always crowded. It was a center of priestly power. The, the synagogues were where the, the Pharisees had their power, but the chief priests in the temple. And it was also a center of national unity. For the great, priest, the great feasts were held in Jerusalem, and the sacrifices were made at the temple. What were the three, three great feasts? The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and also Pentecost. And they were... Okay, they were done there. And then, of course, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies. What was the importance to Jesus' mission? Well, when he's a boy, his parents find him after a couple of days being on the road, and they discover he's gone. <laughs> they find him in the temple, and then he's you know, kind of nonplussed by it all. Can you imagine being Mary, the mother of Jesus, and you lost God? Can you imagine that? <laughs> And they find him in the temple. And what does he say? What? Don't you know that I ought to be in my father's house? So he sees this. This is his father's house. Hmm. 
I'm sure that he regularly attended the feast. No, we don't have any record of that, but I suspect that he had been there several times. And now, in this passage, he is not going to call it just his father's house. He is going to say, it is what? It is my house. It's my house. It's kind of a sports analogy. You don't come into my house, and you don't beat me here, okay? It's going to be an arena of confrontation between him and those that are opponents to true worship. The upcoming events during the Holy Week, Jesus is going to heal there. He's going to teach there. And he's going to be followed by large crowds that come to observe him. You mean, they've heard. You heard what Chris said. They've heard about Lazarus. Amazing. And crowds came, if for no other reason, because Lazarus had been resurrected. They want to see Lazarus too and Jesus. And large crowds are following him into Jerusalem. It's going to be here where religious officials question his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus ties them up in logical knots by saying, I'll answer your question. If you'll answer this for me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? And they didn't know how to answer it, and they shut up. (laughs) He's going to go on the offensive here in the temple. He's going to tell a parable about the vineyard and the wicked tenants of the vineyard, and the Pharisees and the chief priests are going to know that that he's talking about them. Hmm. Near the end of that first day, he is going to give a warning to his, his disciples. Watch out for the teachers of the law. For these scribes, for they like to walk around in flowing robes, and they like to have the place, the cheap places in the, in the uh, worship services, and they like to have the, the head places at the banquets. And they do what? They rob widows. They take away from them. They're false shepherds is what he was saying. So he's going to confront them <laughs> very clearly. They're going to confront him, but every time that they do it in the temple, the three basic confrontations, he defeats them in his logical presentation from Scripture. The Pharisees and Herodians about the tax, should they pay it. The Sadducees about the resurrection. And though Mark's account is positive, the other account about the scribe that then approaches him, the lawyer that approaches him rather, about which is the greatest of the commandments. You see, they're challenging Jesus. It's going to be here then, it's about the temple that false accusations are going to be leveled against him. The chief accusation against Jesus at the beginning of the week that leads then to his being brought then before the Sanhedrin is this man says that he is going to do what? He's going to destroy the temple. So, two things I want to observe in closing, which will take about 15 minutes, okay? One of those is how they were offended by Jesus and all of this. And then we're going to take a look at why Jesus does what he does in the temple, why he was offended by them. Why were the Jews offended by Jesus? Because there had been an earlier encounter, maybe. And there's a lot of debate between scholars of whether John 2, whether John's chronological. You've heard me say this before. There is a cleansing of the temple in John 2. And we know what happens there. You know, they say, give us a sign. Give us a sign. So that we know that what you're doing is of God. And he says, what? Destroy this temple and I will do what? I will raise it again in three days. That is later interpreted as, I'm going to destroy this temple and rebuild it. And that's completely different. And we know what he was saying because John tells us a little bit later, he was not talking about that temple. He was talking about his, his body. Okay. Now, this could have happened during Passion Week. Okay. It could be commensurate. It could be this same event here. Okay. Um, it could be that John's chronological and this is the second of those encounters. Hmm. I don't know. If it is, they're all the more culpable. (laughs) 
But you know, very early in his ministry, the religious leaders start hunting down Jesus. And that gives some credence to the possibility that there had been an earlier cleansing of the temple, maybe. You know, uh, it, this happens right at the beginning of his ministry, at least in John, if you look at it chronologically. It's after the miracle at Cana in John 2. He's there at a Passover uh, celebration. And there are two other Passover celebrations in John. There's another one in John 6, before the feeding of the 5,000. And there is the third one that we encounter in John 12 through 20 after the resurrection of Lazarus. So th there, is, there are some chronological hooks there in, in John, okay? Now whether it's all chronological or not, or whether John inserted this story at the beginning to, to bring out the, uh, uh, the emphasis on Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders or not, I don't know. But we do know from very early on, the religious leaders are pursuing Jesus. And Mark the third chapter, after he heals a man with a withered hand, it says that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And a little bit later in Mark the third chapter, the scribes from Jerusalem then accused Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. In Mark the seventh chapter, the scribes come up from Jerusalem and they challenge him and his disciples because his disciples are not observing the purity code. We have that great passage about it. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but that which comes out of a person that makes him unclean. So there is this pursuit after Jesus long before the resurrection of Lazarus. And I don't know whether it's connected any at all, maybe with a, an earlier cleansing of the temple. What we do know is this, that, Jesus, that Jewish leaders feared Jesus now. <laughs> In the Passion Week, they're running scared. You see... He has performed great miracles, and he continues to do so in Jerusalem. And great crowds are following him. He, he, he teaches in the temple. You see, the temple had been a place of what? Sacrifice and worship, and now he comes in. It's also a place of, guess what? Healing and miracles. This has got to make them very afraid. It says that they were fearful because his authority and the people were mesmerized by his teaching. So it becomes a place not only of sacrifice and worship, but of healing and teaching. There's a, maybe some scholars think, too, maybe even a hint of insurrection here. I don't, don't think there's much to it, but some would say, well, he is the son of a carpenter. Well, carpenters were technones. They worked with their hands. There wasn't much wood to work with in Palestine in that day. It also means that his dad, Joseph, also probably was a stonemason. Some scholars think that Joseph may have, in fact, worked on Herod's uh, palace, Herod Antipas' palace in Sephoris, which was not very far from Nazareth. So he's a carpenter. He's a stonemason. Maybe Zechariah's family. Zechariah was a country priest. Maybe also, too, he was a carpenter. We don't know. Hmm. So there are some scholars that say there's something about maybe Jesus and his identity as being a stonemason. And maybe even a hint of insurrection behind that. That there might have been a conspiracy to revolt and dismantle the temple. I don't think there's much to that. But certainly they were afraid of Jesus. The controversy is amplified in the synoptic gospels. And in the synoptic gospels they are chronological. And if you discount the possibility of the earlier event in John being chronologically early, then what would be the basis of their saying he says that he's going to destroy the temple if it doesn't happen until Mark, the 13th chapter, this temple is going to come down very soon.
The basis of false charge might be found in Luke, the 19th chapter. For there, as he wept over Jerusalem, he prophesies its destruction. The problem is, he does not do this publicly. Jesus predicted the, dis, uh, the destruction of the temple and the synoptics a little more openly by his, to his disciples, and they may have, he may have been overheard. Matthew 24 is parallel to Mark 13 and Luke 21. And that's the incident where he comes out of the temple and his disciples, they look at the massive stones and he says, you see these stones, not one stone will be left on the other. They will all come tumbling down. So maybe this is overheard. They're threatened by his popularity. He's raised Lazarus. He teaches with authority, unlike their scribes, their teachers of the law. And, you know, even though the priest has said there needs to be a sacrifice for the sake of Israel, many of the religious leaders were concerned that what he would, be, would do would be a rabble-rouser that would stir up the people and bring down Roman wrath upon them. He had directly challenged their, uh, their authority of the temple earlier. In, in uh, Matthew, the 12th chapter, uh, after his disciples had been gathering grain in the fields, uh, you know, this is where he talks about the fact that, you know, David had gathered grain, he'd gathered the showbread from the temple and had eaten it on the Sabbath. Matthew adds to this, Or have you not read the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath, and they're considered innocent? And this is what he says then. But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. That's a challenge. So you see, they ran fearful and they were afraid of Jesus. They were offended by him. But Jesus, to wrap things up then, why does this happen? Why does this event happen at this time in Mark's gospel? Jesus took offense at them too. At their arrogant and their empty worship. After cursing the fig tree... Verse number 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house, my house will be called a house of prayer for whom? For all nations. Hmm, Does that sound familiar this morning? Great Commission is to do what? Make disciples of what? All nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. <laughs> this is found also in, uh, in Mark's gospel in the 12th chapter and in Luke's gospel, the 19th chapter. Matthew adds this. He continued to heal the blind and the lame. The children proclaim Hosanna. The priests and the scribes try to shut them up. And Jesus says, do you not know from the Psalms? Psalm 8, he quotes, he says, out of the mouths of babes, you have prepared what? Worship for yourself. And Luke adds that he taught daily in the temple. There There were three issues that are raised in this passage, I think. Number one, it's my house. God's house is to be a what? A holy place. It's to be a place of worship. The second issue is it's not to be a place of exploitation. Unlike some houses of worship in America today. And it is for all nations. It's a place of prayer. Sincere persons come to God's house to talk with God and to be with God. Jeremiah 7. They came with blood on their hands. They came there not to talk with God and to be with God. They came with wrong hearts. 
And they came with empty words. Jeremiah says this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you then dwell in this place. Hmm. What does that mean? If you don't, you're not allowed in. Wow. <laughs> Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, The temple, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you don't oppress the alien, if you don't oppress the orphan or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after the other gods to your own ruin, then, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Empty words. Empty worship. Jesus had already put the religious leaders on notice in Mark, the seventh chapter. He quoted Isaiah 29, and you know what he said. Isaiah said, these people honor me with their what? Their lips. With lip service. But their hearts are where? Far away from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. I think they got the Pharisees' ears. (laughs) You see, Jesus' charge was their worship was empty. It was not in what? What did he tell the Samaritan woman? We're to worship in what? Spirit and truth. They had no sense of God's awesome presence. You see, previously God's Shekinah glory had filled Solomon's temple at the dedication. We're told in 1 Kings, it happened that when the priests, they came into the holy place and then... It was so filled with the presence of the Lord that the priests could not stay there. They couldn't even stay in the temple to minister because of the cloud, because of the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But now, but now, what has happened? The glory of the Lord has departed the temple. Ichabod. Ichabod. The ark is no longer there. And I'm not saying that God resided in the ark, but that's pretty symbolic. The ark is not there. Yet Malachi had prophesied that this would change. And this is about Jesus. He says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come in his temple. Here he is. That's what's happening here. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold so that they may once again present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That is who has entered the temple, who Malachi prophesied. What Jesus was saying was, your your worship is empty. And in America today, there may be 55% of the people who say they pray daily, but what are they really doing? There may be 400,000 houses of worship in this country, but it doesn't make it necessarily a religious country. When people come and they offer empty lip service to the Lord, and that's all it is, and they have blood on their hands and they have wrongful hearts, they are not worshiping truly. No, we need to come with pure hearts, empty hands, and desire to seek the Lord and repent. You see, it's not a place of commerce either. It's not a place of exploitation. There were legitimate commercial needs around the temple. You know, provide sacrificial animals, they had, to, they had to pay for it. 
And to provide the, the, the temple tax, they had to pay in uh, Tyrrhenian drachma. So they had to exchange money. That, that was legitimate. And it used to be done on the Mount of Olives. Every male had to pay this tax once a year. And they had to pay it in this particular kind of silver. In the ending of the month just before Passover. That's the season now. Okay. So what's happened? Now it has been moved to the temple. It's been, it's been moved to the courtyard of the Gentiles. And it's become crass exploitation. The aristocratic priests and the Sadducees control the temple. And now they also regulate the tax and the collection of the money. Hmm. And they exploit the people. Jeremiah 7 says himself, he prophesies, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I even I have seen it, declares the Lord. And now he's sent his son to fix it. The last verse of Jeremiah prophesies this purging by Jesus. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. He's not, I think, talking about Canaanite Canaanites or ethnically Canaanite. The word here is a derivative of a word that means unclean. He's saying at the end of Zechariah, there's going to come a day when those that are unclean are going to be expelled from the temple. And that includes the merchants and the money changers. And it's going to be cleansed of all of its uncleanness and unrighteousness. Jesus was offended not only because of the money changing that was going on in the temple, but where was it happening? You know this. It was happening in the court of the Gentiles. And it was inhibiting their approach to the temple. What Jesus is saying here is you can't serve God and money both. And then finally, not only was it a place of holiness to worship God and to walk with Him, and not for exploitation, it was a place for all nations. The outer court was for the Gentiles, for all nations. That was the original intent. Solomon's prayer of dedication said even then that there was going to be a place for the Gentiles. Also concerning the foreigner in 1 Kings, it says, who is not of your people Israel, when he comes from a far country, for your name's sake, Lord, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, and they will come then and pray toward this house. That's, that's important. Toward the house, but yet, not yet what? Admitted into the house. And you will hear from heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you in order for, that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you and do your peop, as do your people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. So even with Solomon, there's going to be an opportunity for them to approach the house of the Lord and to give him glory even though they can't come into it. But then what does Isaiah say? Isaiah, near the end, changes it. He prophesies about this great change that's going to occur in chapter 56. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him. Foreigners. And to the love of the name of the Lord to be His servants. Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. These foreigners. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Not toward it. In it. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. And Isaiah 56, 7 says this, For my house will be called a house of prayer for what? All the peoples. What offended Jesus most about all of this was that the Gentiles were being hindered and obstructed from worshiping God. 
Jews were not only obstructing them, they were setting a bad example. They were violating the very purpose of the temple to be a witness to the nations. They're called to be what we said this morning, a holy nation, a priesthood, God's covenant people to witness to others. And they were negating their very identity that Abraham had been given. The patriarch, the great father who had been called to be a blessing to what? To all peoples. And this greatly offended Jesus. So God's intent for Judah and Jerusalem is found really at the beginning of Isaiah. We'll close with this. And this is what Jesus knew. Now will it come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. And will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God, the house of the God of Jacob. That he may teach us concerning his ways that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render the decisions for many peoples. And they will then do what? You get the picture. This is the beginning of Isaiah. All the nations are going to come to Mount Zion. They're going to come to the house of the Lord. They're going to gather together and he is going to sit as judge. Can you see this eschatological picture of the end times here? And then what will happen? They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. So who has just walked into the temple? The Prince of Peace. He's going to cleanse the temple and make it a place of worship for all nations. And we know that didn't happen with the building. Didn't happen with the building. It was destroyed, oh, if this was 2930 A.D., it was destroyed how many years later? Forty years later. It didn't happen in that building. It happened in which building? You destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. You come to me, I will gather the nations. I am the Prince of Peace. I will cause you then to beat your instruments of war into plowshares of peace. And we are going to have a reconciliation between the nations at the foot of the cross. You see, he came as the Prince of Peace to fulfill the purpose of the temple. And he demonstrated that this day by the cleansing of the temple.